in case you're new to us or maybe it's been a little while since you've attended worship at Huguenot Road, we're in part four of a message series on rivers in the Bible. And I hope you've been enjoying and I've had, been having fun walking through this. We've looked at rivers like the Jordan River and the Nile River, both of which have significant spiritual and historical meaning for our faith narrative. We're also looking at some rivers during this series that help us to have a more figurative way of illustrating spiritual truth. And since we live in the river city where the James runs right through our capital, we entitled the series The River. Have fun gathering this summer. On today's message, we're deviating just a little bit from rivers and we're focusing on the Sea of Galilee. Actually, its headwaters, the headwaters of the Jordan, lead us to the Sea of Galilee where Jesus called his first disciples. This is where he spent much of his ministry. And we're going to see how ordinary fishermen were invited to join God in his redemptive activity of reaching people who are far from God. In order to make some sense of today's passage, the account of the call of the first disciples, it helps if we go back and look at John's Gospel in the first chapter, starting at verse 35. And I won't read that, but you might read it on your own study time, John 1, 35 and following. Because the first followers of Jesus were actually followers of John the Baptist. <clears throat> and so Jesus doesn't come to these guys having never met them before. He had been developing relationship with these guys down by the water. It might have been nine months or so from uh, this time until the time of his baptism, Jesus' baptism, that, that he had been working with them, developing these personal relationships, kind of testing their character, seeing if they would be the kind of people whom he could trust with the responsibility of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I think it's neat that Jesus chose fishermen. After all, they were well-connected in the community, hardworking. They knew the lay of the land. They knew not only the character of the river, but also of the Sea of Galilee. They would have had a survival mentality. Storms would frequently come up on the Sea of Galilee, and they were brave men. They understood what it meant to take risks and to leave one place to go to another to find a good harvest of fish. They perhaps would be the kind of people that could reach others with the good news that Jesus would share with them. So I believe that when he sensed that they were ready to take that next step of commitment, that Jesus invited them to say, okay, guys. We've been talking for a good while. It's been great hanging out with you and learning your stories, learning about your families, but now it's time. Up next, get out of the boat. Come on. Follow me. Can you just imagine Jesus saying, come on, guys, it's time. Come follow me. I've got an assignment for you. Here in this call is an important theological perception that we can that is that God is the one who initiates the call and we respond. God always invites us to follow him and we are the ones who respond. Earlier you heard Liz read, you did not, says Jesus, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
The call of the first disciples to leave their nets and follow Jesus tells a story of radical risk and change. Jesus summoned these men to his irresistible authority and they responded with radical obedience. As we enter into this story of God's call and their response, I'd like to make a few observations that may help us as we live as followers of Jesus in today's world. My hope is that we will have a heightened level of our, 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 our confidence would be raised in the God who is calling us to join him in what he's doing. That as Paul writes in Second Timothy, that we would be early equipped for every good work. So a few observations about how God works in the call of discipleship. The first one is that God sees an incredible potential in you and me. If you're taking notes, God sees the potential that you and I have. If you look back at verse 18 and 21, Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee and he saw the two brothers. He'd met them before. He developed a relationship with them. But he said he saw these two brothers. And then verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers. And I believe that on this particular day, that Jesus saw the potential that they had and then said, all right, guys, it's time. Come, follow me. He saw more than rugged fishermen. He saw their kingdom potential. Not only did Jesus see them as they were, but he saw what they could become. He saw their potential. We see God acting in the same way back in the Old Testament when he was seeking a king to replace Saul who had catered to what others wanted him to do as opposed to what God wanted him to do. And God sold Samuel. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God sees our potential that is within us. God saw enormous potential in a young David, the youngest and least respected of his brothers, and yet he chose him to be the ruler of all Israel. This reminds me of the wonderful sculptor, the famous sculptor, Michelangelo, back during the Renaissance times. He's most well known for his Sistine Chapel paintings and for his statue of King David. From 1549, Michelangelo defined sculpture as the art of, quote, taking away, not adding on. Taking away, not adding on. And many of his unfinished statues clearly show this process of taking away, carving as he labored to free the figure born in his mind from the confines of the marble rock. He once stated that the key to sculpture was, quote, to release the sculpture which has been within the stone. He believed that every stone contained a sculpture and it was the artist's responsibility to release it. Michelangelo's statement is a wonderful illustration to the Christian faith and it can teach us how we can discover and learn the Christ within us. Many Christians are grossly unaware of the masterpiece that we contain. 
Sometimes God just has to chip away at Bob, chip away a little more, chip away a little more, so that I can reach the potential that God has stored up within me. Maybe you feel the same way. That there's this chipping away, and then there's that masterpiece. God sees that potential in every boy and girl and every man and woman. He sees that potential. God sees beyond what we are. God sees who we can become. He sees our true kingdom potential. And sometimes we, we might say, okay, well, that's, that's great that God sees that potential, but how am I supposed to do what He wants me to do? I don't know that, or I'm not gifted, or I'm not talented, or I can't do this or that. And I would say, say this, second, that God will prepare and equip you and me for our assignment. It's not up to us. When God calls, God equips, prepares and equips us to do that which He desires for us to do. Look at verse 19. He says, come follow me, in verse 19, and I will set you out to fish for people, or I will make you fishers of men. There's a promise here. When we follow, God will do what God is supposed to do. I will make you fishers of men. I will set you out for the responsibility of catching people. No longer fish guys, but people. In the Greek New Testament here, the word for I will make you fishers of men, I will make is create, it's poieo. It's the same Greek word that we find in the Greek translation of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, that God is the creator and still yet is creating within us whom he wants us to be as we follow him. This reminds us how God made us out of the earth. It reminds us of Psalm 139.13. God formed us in our mother's womb. It reminds us of Genesis 1.27 that we are created in the image of God. Male and female created he us. We are created in the image of God. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are God's workmanship created, again, poieo, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. It's only God... It's only God who can make us into something new. God sees that kingdom potential in each one of us. And, and God knows that we, we need some tools. Fishermen needed tools. They needed a boat. They needed weights. They needed nets. They needed knives. They needed wood for repairs. They needed significant knowledge of the type of fish and where to fish and some strategies. And for us as Christian people, these are our spiritual gifts. These are the abilities that God has given us. The choir, as they sang this morning, serving out of their giftedness and the special abilities that God gives. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Some of you have the gift of administration, leadership, organizing. Some of you have the gift of generosity. Some of you have the gift of mercy. Some of you can identify with somebody who's in need far better than somebody else is equipped to do so. These gifts are the tools that God gives us to enable us to carry out the ministry that He has called us to. Sometimes we just have to let go and let God. You remember Moses? 
he, he said, I can't speak. I, I have a problem speaking in front of people. And God said, don't worry. I'll send Aaron. I'll provide a tool for you. He will speak for you. Gideon was filled with doubt and tested God. And God had grace upon him and gave him the wisdom and the understanding of how to engage in the battlefield with a very limited means. Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. He felt unworthy to follow the instructions that God was giving him and God's mercy was given to him and he was forgiven and charged with the responsibility of speaking words of God. Jonah went the opposite direction than Nineveh and God still used him despite his failings to do the work that he had called him to do. Mary Magdalene, previously the scripture says she was and she was healed of those demons and became one of Jesus' strongest followers. She underwrote financially his ministry and never left his side. Paul, Scripture says that he was unsightly and had sort of medical condition that caused him significant pain and suffering. His past was filled with hatred. He was a killer of Christians and tried to destroy the church. And yet God changed him and gave him the tools that he would write over half of the New Testament and change the whole landscape of the early church. Peter was rebuked by Jesus, denied him three times, wouldn't listen very well, didn't follow instructions, and yet God prepared and equipped him to do the work of God. Thomas, another person very skeptical and cynical, yet one of the most faithful disciples. Timothy, young and inexperienced, and yet was one who was a church planter and equipped church leaders all over. It is said that God doesn't call the equipped, that God equips the called. I never thought I was a preacher. I was an insurance guy. After I, you know, when I was in college, I majored in political science. I thought that's what you needed to do to go to law school. And I had my sights set on a lawyer. I worked at a law firm all through college and took the LSAT and did not do very well. But I still applied to all these law schools, and not a one of them accepted me. So my father-in-law, he's with the Lord now, my father-in-law was worked for a large insurance company. And he said, Bobby, that's what they call me, he says, have you ever thought of claims? And I said, no, sir. I really didn't know what claims was all about. And he said, well, I don't. we're not hiring, but another I've got a friend at another company, and they're hiring, and I'll put a, a word in for you. And he did, and they hired me. And they transferred me to a town called Orangeburg, South Carolina, which is midway between Charleston and Columbia. And I spent the first um, six years of my career there. Melanie and I were married a year uh, in 1990 after I was transferred there. We bought a house there, and... We joined First Baptist Orangeburg and started teaching 11th and 12th grade Sunday school students. And that is how God started to work in my heart a call to ministry. I never thought that a regular insurance guy like myself would go to seminary and would be pastor of a church. But God called and God prepared me and God equipped me with the tools. What I'm saying to you is this that every single one of us has potential, that God sees potential for the kingdom in every single one of you. 
And when we say yes to God, it's amazing to see how he works in our lives. And the last thing I want to say is that God just wants us to have a teachable spirit. A teachable spirit. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. That God's always watching. He's always looking for people who are fully committed to Him. Who say, here I am, Lord, send me. Teach me, Lord. I want to have a teachable spirit, a pliable spirit, a moldable spirit. I want to be the kind of person that you want me to be, to do the work you've called me to do. Not long ago, I was working with one of our deacons here at the church. I like feedback. And I was asking him you know, to help me with some feedback on leading the Lord's Supper. You, you know the first Lord's Supper was Easter. How's that? You know, put that on your new preacher, right? And if you're deacons, you remember that I forgot to serve the bread to the deacons. And thanks be to God for John Greenhill sitting over there on the second row. And he looks at me and he says, I forgot to serve the bread to the deacons. Oh, so I served the bread and the juice at the same time when we made the second pass. And you all thought it was all scripted. Wow, he does things differently here. And I'm, I'm just so thankful that we have a wonderful, graceful spirit here. But that deacon and I, as we were talking, was helping me to learn from that First Communion Sunday. And I talked with him regularly. And I told him, listen, I said, I have a teachable spirit. I'm a lifelong learner. And I, I just want to grow. And if I make mistakes, I just want to learn from them. And so we'll, we'll make lots more of them in the future. Just, just know. But God wants us to have a teachable spirit. He wants people just to show up and say, Lord, here am I. Use me. Teach me. Send me. When Jesus was teaching on prayer and giving and fasting, he's like, be humble about it. Don't make a show about it. And God also wants us to keep our eyes on him. You remember Saul, the king of the first United, of the United Monarchy, took his eyes off of God. And Samuel replied with these words that apply to us as Christ's followers. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. He just wants us to keep our eyes fixed on his word. Bonhoeffer, who gave his life during the World War II time, trying to overthrow Hitler, he was a Lutheran. He was a strong believer, theologian. He says, it will always be true that the wisest course for the disciple is always to abide solely on the word of God in all simplicity. That we would be people of the book. God sees our enormous potential to be fishers of people. And God will shape us to do that work. He sees the masterpiece in us. He'll prepare us for that assignment, give us the tools that we need. We just need to have a teachable spirit. Fishing's hard work. My daughter, she likes me to bait the hook and then take the fish off. It's messy, slimy. She likes to touch the fish, 
maybe as she grows, you know, she'll learn to, to take it off. Fishing's also slow. Sometimes it takes a long time. I have a friend that I've been hanging out with for the nine years that we've lived in our current neighborhood in Hanover. And he's not a believer. He's come to a number of mission projects I've invited him to over the years, but never came to church. And talking about religion can be challenging. Sharing God's love with people just takes time sometimes. It's also costly. It costs a lot of money to run a large church and to do missions like we do and ministries like we do. And it's also dangerous. It takes time and sacrifice and a lot of energy. But we are called to do things that no one else will do. My question as a church is, can we ask that question? What is no other church doing in our community that God's calling us to do? What is no other church doing in Bonaire that Huguenot Road could do? What's no other church in northwestern Chesterfield doing that we can do? What's no other church in Midlothian doing that we can do? What's no other church in the city of Richmond doing that we can do? You've already got a wonderful start. The clinic is coming in September, and I see so many other incredible mission and ministries that outpour from this church, but we cannot be satisfied with just those. We have to ask that question, what is no one else doing for the cause of the kingdom that we could do? How might we invest like no one else is willing to invest? How might we care for people in such a way that no one else is caring for them? How can we set apart, set ourselves apart by caring like no one else cares. I believe that's what our students did this past week in Washington, D.C. I hope that you'll talk to our students and hear their stories. They went up, yes, to rehearse for a tremendous concert at the National Cathedral on Friday evening. But all through the week, they were the hands and the feet of Jesus. Thank you for praying for them. Thank you for the resources that you've allocated to their ministry to help them to serve. And today in the last part of the message, I've invited Claire Anderson, one of our students who went, Claire, come on up. And she's going to share a few moments about her experience and how God worked through our students. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of your wondrous deeds. These were the opening lyrics to the grand concert that United Praise participated in on Friday night. Our choir spent last week at a choir festival and on a mission trip, and before we left on this trip, I was only imagining the hours of singing and even more walking around our nation's capital. This trip turned out to be so much more, and alongside the worship through singing, baking cornbread at D.C. Central Kitchen, and prayer walking through D.C., God was able to reach us when we opened our eyes to what he had planned for us. On Friday, God led us on a journey to meet a man named Larry. Eight of us were prepared with sandwiches and cereal, and we were planning to walk to the metro to give them to the homeless we had seen daily on our way to practice. However, as we reached the light, a convertible drove by, blasting worship music, and turned a corner where we were planning on walking straight. We followed the car, having seen this as a sign from God, 
And when we did, we came across a man that we would have completely passed if the car had not turned at that time. As we continued, we sang to more people and passed out more meals. As we were turning back, however, we saw a man sitting on a bench who we had earlier seen collecting money. We went up to him and learned his name was Larry, and we offered him food and to sing to him. He accepted the food and was excited to hear us sing, Give Me Jesus. And I will never forget the tears running down his face as we finished our song. He blessed us as we said goodbye and left a mark on all of our hearts. On that day, we set out to serve men and women like Larry, but in the end, God used them to work in us. God sent us to where we needed to be and when we needed to be there. God sent us to serve and to see him working in and through us. This was a week of experiences that I won't forget, as I would assume all are, when you open yourself up in service to God. I want to thank you all for your prayers, and especially those who came to the concert this week. My friends and I are so grateful to be part of such a family that really is family. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Claire, and thank you all of our students who went and made a tremendous difference. Our nation's capital is not the same having your, your presence there. And if that whole week was only for Larry, it was all worth it. Jesus saw the brothers and he said, come follow me. God sees beyond what we are. God sees who we can become. God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. Would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, we are humbled that you would call us to do the divine work that you desire to do. Help us, God, to have a teachable spirit that we are moldable and shapeable to become the vessels that you desire us to be. And God, I feel most often like I'm a cracked pot, like I am imperfect and just sometimes am in awe of the way that you want to use me as a Christian person. I feel inadequate and unworthy. And through your grace, you continue to love me and continue to enable me to do the work you've called me to. Maybe others in this room feel the same way, God. And we're just so thankful that when we show up, that you can see the masterpiece in us and that you can send us into our neighborhoods and schools and workplaces and cities and towns to make a difference. I'm thankful that our students responded to that call this past week. I know others coming up and through our church are going. Use us, God. Maybe there are people in our church today who have not stepped up to say, I want to follow Jesus and make him Lord of my life. If that's you, respond to God as you are led. 
Others, God, may be needing to unite with the church family. They're believers, but they don't have a church family. And maybe Huguenot Road is to be their family. Others still yet may have a call to missions in some way, locally or globally. Help them hear that call, even if it comes in a still, small voice. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave us Jesus. Help us to represent him well as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, here am I is our song of response. It's number 486.